Welcome to Terrify Me, a podcast about scary stories from fact, fiction, and folklore. I'm your host, Anthony Frost, and I am joined by Nicole Cushing. She's written a book called Moth Woman. Um, so this will be my like second Mothman-themed episode, because I did an episode about Mothman a while ago, um, one of my early ones. Uh, so yeah, Nicole, thanks for joining me. Uh, how are you doing today? How's things on your side of the planet? I'm doing very well, thank you. Excellent. Glad to hear it. So, Moth Woman. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was a really, really good read. I, this, I, I read Mr. Suicide earlier this year. And this book as well, Like, um, you seem to have an incredible ability to just keep me on edge and make me really uncomfortable. Well, thank you. Yes. Yes, I... I, I um... I don't really consciously strive for that, uh, but for whatever reason, my writing has evolved in that way where I find myself driven to explore the uncomfortable and, and to say it. And it could be simply because uh, one of my pet peeves is when people don't talk about what's uncomfortable when uh, it gets brushed under the doormat, so to speak, or under the carpet. And I am interested in being honest. And part of that means being honest about what's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. You're totally right there. I totally agree. So with this book, obviously you delved quite a bit into the, the Mothman legend. Um, have you, are you quite into the whole cryptozoology thing urban legends and that sort of stuff well it's very intriguing because i never was uh before the year 2020 uh and it all evolved very spontaneously um one might even say synchronous uh with regard to synchronicity uh mm. i uh was I was laid off from work for my day job because of the lockdown here in the States. And uh, I had a family emergency uh, where my mom called me and asked me to come to visit my, my hometown to uh, help attend to the family emergency. And as a result, I ended up taking the, you know, I live in uh, Southern Indiana, which is in the Midwestern United States. Uh, I grew up on the East coast. So uh, it's, about a 13 hour drive that I usually split up in two days. Went out there, took care of the family emergency, was out there for about a week to help out my family. And on uh, the evening before I departed my parents' house, I decided, well, I'm just going to treat myself. I'm going to stop in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Uh, which I'd never been to before, but I've often noticed, you know, there's a sign along the interstate highway that indicates that Point Pleasant is, you know, off of one of the side roads and uh, tells you how far it is to Point Pleasant. So, and I was vaguely familiar with it as being the site of where the Mothman, uh, where, where the Mothman sightings occurred. And I decided, well, you know what? I'm just going to treat myself. I'm going to go to Point Pleasant after this very uh, exhausting family uh, emergency and uh, go and visit there. And I thought, well, it's probably going to be like the, the museum's probably going to be closed because of the lockdown still. But I'll go there. I'll see the little statue they have in town. And, you know, it'll be like a fun, kitschy roadside attraction to kind of lighten my mood. And uh, when I arrived uh, in Point Pleasant, I realized that the museum actually was open and had just reopened uh, from lockdown a couple of days before. Uh, and when I got there in the morning, I more or less had the run of the place and was able to talk with the gentleman behind the counter and you know, take my time leisurely looking at all the exhibits. And I found myself uh, fascinated uh, to realize that there was another part of this besides the kitschy roadside attraction part. There was that kitschy roadside attraction part. But in addition, there was also, you know, very a very strange element, an element would, uh, which I would later come to realize is called high strangeness. Uh, the Indrid Cold Story, for example, 
that was bizarre. And I wasn't really sure how these men in black kind of uh, fit into everything. Uh, and I read the testimonials of some of the witnesses that were written. They have handwritten testimonials from the witnesses there in the Mothman Museum. And so I was intrigued. So I picked up a copy of the Mothman Prophecies. Uh, it was a small press edition with a, a Frank Frazetta cover. And I wasn't even necessarily interested in reading it. I just thought it would be an interesting collectible. Uh, but then I got home and I started reading it. And I became very interested because there was a David Lynch almost aspect to the Mothman story, which I never would have imagined. And that got me interested. And especially the combination of the kitschy roadside attraction and there's almost cartoonishness of this creature that is uh, part bird, part man, or something along those lines. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a very strange aspect in that regard, but, uh, you know, kind of cartoonish, along with the very disturbing, uh, you know, David Lynch kind of uh, uh, spooky, uh, really um, unnerving aspect of, of the creature. And from there, I decided that was what I was going to make the subject of my next novel. So before going on that trip, I had never heard of Injured Cold. I had never watched the Mothman Prophecies movie. Um, I really had no interest in cryptozoology. And afterwards, I took a kind of a, a trip down the rabbit hole and became very familiar with all those uh, subjects. Yeah, I mean, it happens to the best of us. I think... Um... My my sort of gateway drug into the whole North American uh, high strangeness thing. So we we have our own flavors of it over here, but it's a little different. But I really love the North American stuff. My my gateway drug into that was you know the whole Roswell, New Mexico stuff mm -hmm. that went on. But uh, Mothman's uh, a, a big area of interest for me. Uh, I could talk about Mothman all day, and uh, I have done many times talked about Mothman all day. Um, and my wife somehow puts up with it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so Point Pleasant is definitely on my hit list of places that I desperately want to visit at some point. Uh, so with this novel, I found that like I really liked what you did with the injured cold character. Like, um, yeah, it's a very it, it, it's a fascinating take on the whole thing. Like uh, the, the sort of the universe creation myth that you slid in there was a uh, suitably, uh, yeah, yeah, that was very it was bleak, but it was yeah, it felt about right for the story. Uh, yeah, does, yeah, thank you. Does that come from anywhere? Is that like in, influenced by some sort of myth or? Um, well, it's interesting. Um, when I, I think before I was writing the novel, either before or during, um, I can't remember which, there, there was a novel written by a Nigerian author actually called The Palm Wine Drinkard. Uh, and it's a novel with, um, as you might imagine, being from a Nigerian author, uh, informed by uh, African mythology. And some of the imagery of, I mean, one of the image, images in that, in that novel is uh, uh, an image of, um, you know, very aggressive uh, uh, babies. In, in the case of, of that novel, very aggressive dead babies chasing mm -hmm. Uh, the main characters out of the town of the dead. Um, and uh, it's a fascinating novel, by the way. Uh, the premise is that uh, a gentleman in Nigeria has a, a guy who uh, manufactures palm wine for him and uh, his palm wine uh, maker uh, falls from a tree and dies. And so he has to, because he's an addict, he needs to uh, persist in drinking palm wine. He has to go to the land of the dead to retrieve uh, the guy who makes his palm wine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> from there, but that's another story. But yeah, that I think the image of very feral, uh, you know, children, or in, in the case of of that creation myth, very feral uh, fetuses may owe something to uh, the palm wine drinkard. Um, and I'm guessing, you know, I, some of it just comes out of my head, completely out of nowhere. Uh, and I thought it would be very grim to explore a 
creation mythos where creation is instigated through an act of trauma uh, and also I found it interesting to explore how the creation mythos would work from the point of view of Indrid Cold's um, society. Uh, it's a mm. very kind of solipsistic uh, creation myth, it, which um, acknowledges that there were beginnings before their beginning, but really doesn't give them much account and is only it's very self-serving uh, and very selfish. Um, which I think we can fairly say the Indrid Cold character uh, appears in in this uh, novel, and and so I thought it's a uh, as all creation myths are a reflection of their societies. I thought this creation myth would also be uh, a you know a mirror of Indrid Cold society, and also um, I found myself kind of without planning to exploring sexism um and that idea of i mean and i'm not a very ideologically driven author um you know I, i'm much more interested in the uh psychology of characters than the sociology of characters but i could not uh help but to address this sense of, um, for lack of a better word, patriarchy. Uh, and I thought that creation myth would serve the identification of Indrid Cold's culture as a patriarchal culture uh, well. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it certainly did that. And, uh, you know, your approach to sort of character psychology is one I find very interesting. Um, Yes, yeah, like as I said, you know, like the way the, the way you're writing makes me incredibly uncomfortable. I think it's because you, like, you put the reader so deep into the head of someone who's who is themselves so deeply uncomfortable with the world. Uh, and I, I find it really interesting how you sort of explored like the concepts of like you know post truth and well, post truth is what it's usually referred to in a political sense over here, but like you know post modernism and subjectivity versus objectivity, which is. Uh, yeah, I, I, I found that really interesting. So was that intended from the start that you sort of have that weird sort of interplay between the subjective and the objective? Or was that just, did that just uh, I, I think what I wanted to do is explore how difficult it is to grasp what is actually happening <laughs> um, and, and the inherent subjectivity of a lot of reality. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, and so obviously there is objective reality. Obviously, if I walk off a cliff, I'm going to fall and I'm going to die. Um, but there are these experiences, particularly experiences with the numinous, uh, or with the transcendent that are intensely subjective and so much so that they almost cannot be communicated with others. And so what I found myself, um, doing is uh you know having someone experience these experiences and then also react i think in a very human way of questioning whether they've actually had these experiences much as i have in my own life i mean i've had um occasional brushes with uh what i would call uh the extraordinary or um the unreal or the, the semi-real, and I find myself, you know, at the time of the experience being very sucked into it, and then five minutes after the experience, you know, being like, that didn't really happen. Um, and yeah. and so I think I've, I felt it, you know, kind of like this process of equivocation that happens a lot, where, where there's like, you know, asserting an experience and then immediately questioning it. Um, I think that there's something true about that. And I've always wanted to speak the truth. So I think the only human way of, of describing these experiences is to describe both the intense experience of consciousness that occurs in these experiences and also describing the sense of doubt that occurs five minutes afterwards.
or 10 minutes afterwards or a week afterwards or six months afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, but that sort of the, the clash of, you know, experience versus reason and the flip-flopping um, between, you know, real and unreal. I, I, I understand that. Uh, and I think setting the story during COVID was a particularly... Well, obviously, you know, fairly natural considering you wrote it during COVID. But I think COVID itself was a sort of, it, it felt kind of unreal when, you know, like a worldwide pandemic. Like it's the kind of thing yes. you read about in history books you don't expect to live through. Um, and I think, yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people sort of felt a little, you know, dash of that unreality for like, well, they were. Yes, and, and, here, and here in the States, also the Trump administration mm-hmm. uh, was a very unreal um experience for me uh you know you you go to a point where you know in 2015 you know there we you you consider that we've made some progress and we have a very civilized man in the white house and uh, in 2016 um i guess i always knew there was going to be a counterpunch but i didn't know it would be that kind of counterpunch and that you'd have like this absurdity of this television celebrity um who was quite ignorant and quite rude being perceived as charismatic and uh, lofted into the White House. And so there is a sense that, you know, even objective reality is melting, right? Um, That uh, things that you thought would never happen are happening, like the pandemic and like the election of Donald Trump and like his subsequent refusal to accept the the election results. I mean, I, I don't know if we've ever seen that in American history. Uh, and and it's and and the, the you know of course later in, in uh, January of 2021, the storming of the U.S. Capitol by uh, a band of, uh, of of Trump supporters. So in- yes, including you know, a shaman for some reason. Like, yes, including, yeah. <laughs> including someone who fancies himself to be a shaman. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, reality yeah. is melting, and and I feel the need to to speak that. Yeah, totally understandable. I mean, like we've we, we've yeah we've asked deep in the absurd these days. I think we're experiencing similar sort of things over here but like i don't know it seems that your cultural things that happen tend to be quite condensed and sharp and hard whereas here they tend to be a bit more drawn out you know we had our civilized guy in from you know 97 to 2010 tony blair and then gordon brown and then the reaction's been very long and drawn out since then with you know the, uh you know the brexit vote happened in 2016 or something like that and Yes. Yeah. It's, it's all been a bit like, yeah, a long protracted reaction to a little bit of progress in this country. It's yeah. So it's it's a similar thing. I I think in the States, it's like the, the media coverage is so driven around short attention spans. Maybe that's what quickens the pace of the events. Uh, The everything 24 seven news coverage uh, and which gains viewers by really um, giving people melodramatic storylines. Uh, and so the, you know, the emotions swell and the events uh, get very quick, fast paced, uh, like a James Patterson novel or something. And, and, you know, which makes for high news ratings, but terrible policy uh, and a terrible state of affairs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think our media over here is that different. Um, but I think uh, we have a bit of a cynical national character, which means I just don't, I, we just don't get excited about anything, you know. Um, so, yeah, like things don't happen in as in as quicker or an interesting a way. Um, but yeah, regardless. So it's, it's really interesting seeing how you manage to sort of weave everything together in the book uh, with the sort of like government conspiracy aspect which is, feels like dangerous ground to tread at the moment um like with the way conspiracy culture has gone over the last you know decade or so dangerous in what sense oh just a bit of a juggling act because like you don't want to like 
go too hard. Like, you know, like old school X-Files style conspiracies are all really good fun and stuff. And then, um, but the, the, the modern stuff, like the QAnon and everything like that, it's just terrifying. And <laughs> you don't want to like feed into that. Um, or right. Have- totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. It, well, the, the conspiracy in the book, um, I mean, I, I thought it was a very natural tie-in to what I wanted to say about uh, the world. And also to, I, you know, I, the, the effect is, the intended effect is also a, uh, a comedic effect, you know, kind of mm. like a sat- satirical effect of um kind of what uh you know trump why trump would be interested in uh the mothman and which is actually there there was an actual tweet uh that donald trump like retweeted and commented uh on a tweet from the governor of uh west virginia when the governor of west virginia was saying something positive about the mothman festival i think in regard to like its tourism or whatever uh, you know, Trump retweeted him and said something like, I go with Joe, you know, Joe Manchin, the, the, or Senator, I'm sorry, Senator from, uh, from West Virginia. And so uh, the idea is like, why is Trump like tweeting about the Mothman? <laughs> Which I did not know until I started writing the book, but the, um, yeah, there, the, the government conspiracy is, I think, intended to just be comedic. Um, and also, um, it's, I don't want to give too much away, but, but it also plays with our, our protagonist's uh, journey in a way which, um, I think is effective. Mm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I'd certainly agree with that. I really enjoyed uh, the way it was handled. Um, yeah, (laughs) it worked a lot. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to see how, like, the world in general reacts to that um i, I think yeah. i think that's i think that's going to be something that gets spoken about quite a bit at least in our little we'll see i mean i i never know I, you know like i mm. i write this stuff and like the things that people uh pick up on and the things they don't i mean i like i i don't know whether what i never thought that that would be like a major part of the book that people would pick up on <laughs> but <laughs> but i'm you know I'm, I'm kind of like the holy fool here just kind of like writing whatever and being you know great uh completely uh not suspecting how people are going to react to things and not not uh, being a little bit naive maybe about that but uh yeah we'll see and, uh, so far i don't think any of the reviews have really mentioned it but uh we shall see uh it'll always be interesting to to explore that yeah no doubt um i'd be remiss if i didn't mention like just the by the way just the uh the like the quality of the prose in this book uh, it was really very good uh, like there wasn't a single clumsy sentence in the whole thing to be honest thank you i i will work hard on that um as a i'm very very um dedicated to the written word that's uh my primary focus uh i think the written word has the ability to initiate changes in consciousness uh during the reading experience that it's it's uh, akin to magic that uh you have these symbols on the the page and they can immerse a reader in a story if they're manipulated well enough and um and that they can evoke changes of, uh, in consciousness in the reader. Uh, maybe not lasting changes in, in consciousness, but at least for, for a time. And that takes work. I'm, I'm not one of these folks who really, you know, some writers, I think, uh, would prefer to be filmmakers. And they kind of, you know, writing was another way of doing storytelling. And that's fine. They're, I'm not putting them down or anything. But um, my preference has always been to be a writer and I've, I've always loved language even when I was a child like I would for, for pleasure read the dictionary because I loved finding out where the words came from like the dictionary I had when I was a child had the word derivations in there so you would find out where the word, word came from like the, the exclamation gadzooks came from you know possibly uh, you know uh, a, a, a swear of uh, referring to the nails in 
in the uh, Christ's uh, palms because it was God's hooks, uh, which then became gadzooks. That's the kind of thing that fascinates me, how language changes. And, yeah. And uh, and so I've, I've always loved language. I, the writers who I admire are the writers who are pro stylists, uh, Thomas Ligotti, Caitlin Kiernan, Brian Evanson, uh, Percival Everett, uh, who is not a horror writer, but has done some interesting satirical things. Um, they are all people who um, take that seriously. And I think there's well-written prose can kind of make the neurons tingle in the brain. And that's what I'm interested in. As a reader and a writer, I'm interested in making the neurons tingle. Um, and I'm, as a reader, I'm interested in having my neurons tingled. And if it doesn't do that for me, then I'm, I can't really trudge along that long uh, with a book. Yeah, yeah, that's totally fair. Yeah, I, uh, I entirely get what you're saying. And um, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Ligotti and Kiernan, because those are the two people I thought of most, well, two other than yourself, of course, while reading your book. Uh, yeah, definitely. There's a lot. Thank of, you. Yeah, you can see the common threads. Um, yeah, I need to read more Kiernan, actually. I, I only really started reading it this year. Fantastic stuff. That's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, and Lugotti as well. Like your your, your other book uh, that I've read, Mister Suicide, that felt quite very Lugotti in attitude to me. Yes, definitely. Um, at at the time, I was very intoxicated with Lugotti, um, and uh, I mean, and a lot of people were, and, and a lot of people are. Uh, I I was just reading everything I could get my hands on by him, and of course, I it didn't help that I, or rather it didn't hurt that I um, was also going through very intense depression at the time and I hadn't yet gotten on medication. Um, so, you know, in intense depression and anxiety. And so uh, there was a period of time when all of my stories were about suicide <laughs> or <laughs> about, I mean, I'm laughing, which is, you know, that's my personality to laugh when I think about these things. But um yeah, I mean, where every story was about suicide or, you know, like the the thought of suicidal ideation, at least. And um, and so Ligotti, of course, was uh, someone who I found common cause with, in a sense, because I think he was experiencing some of the same things and in uh, some of the same thoughts about life. Um, and I think my career could almost be, uh, at, le at least at this point, divided up into two different phases before before medicine and after medicine. Um, and uh, like A Sick Ray Laugh was written after medicine. Um, and it was also written um, after I had kind of decided that uh, I wanted to go further than, than just simply channeling my reaction to Ligotti. Um, so if you read Ligotti's interviews, you, you find that he is really influenced by a number of authors in translation, um, authors from the, especially from Central Europe, uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, and I started to read the authors that he was influenced by. And then I got really excited by them. And so uh, A Sick Ray Laugh, for example, is really more influenced by central and eastern european literature than it is by Ligotti, uh and uh and uh, you know authors like a, there's a polish author who's obscure in the states uh and possibly in the uk too uh named Witold gambrovich uh and i what i like about the european authors is their willingness to uh really in, uh mix a sense of playfulness with a sense of grimness uh, and not just European authors. Cause I, um, I, I talked about the author of the palm wine drinker too. I mean, he, he also has obviously, you know, the sense of the, the satirical with um, the sense of the um, grim. And I like that. I like that playfulness. And I, I don't think you tend to see it as much um, in literature written in English. Mm. Yeah, you might be right about that. You see, you know, I'm I'm glad you said that um, about Gotti's non-American, like translated influences, uh, because I've, there's something that seems to like something about Gotti, which for him makes his writing feel very different to most American lit for me. Um, 
and I think that might be it that you take that you draw so much influence from uh, European writers, which I need to re- read more of myself. Actually, I'm disgustingly uncultured. Uh, That's okay. That's fine. It, it's there. There are, but one of the things I really found is that look, for me, Legati was not a destination but a door. And you walk through the door and then you go out and find these other authors like Thomas Bernhard is a, a Austrian novelist who is, I think, one of Ligotti's favorite novelists. Uh, and uh, like I said, Dombrovich and even beyond the authors that Ligotti was interested in. You know, I mean, there's uh, you know Milan Kundera is a, a author who has influenced me stylistically. Um, and he's more of a mainstream literary author. Um and I'm, I think my husband just recommended um, his work to me. And I didn't find out about him through Ligotti's uh, work, but there really is a lot of world literature out there that is impressive. There's a, a novella that was published a few years ago, written by, uh, uh, published posthumously, uh, but it's called The Hospital by Ahmed Bounani. Uh, who was a Moroccan writer, and it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I, I always feel like I need to get on my soapbox a little bit whenever I'm, I'm interviewed to talk about the writers from other cultures who, um, are, who have done amazing work because a lot, many of them are now available in English translation. And uh, we're, I think we're, we're cheating ourselves if we don't uh, explore those. And as a writer, certainly... I find it necessary to see what other people are doing, you know, what's going on with writers from Africa or writers from Central Europe or writers from Asia or South America, uh, because the more tools I have at my disposal, the better, the more, the more ways I see stories being told better for me. And I think um, certainly if I have any uh, skill in prose, it comes from reading widely and seeing how the best people do it. Uh, the best people all over the world and uh, and and from learning from them. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that I live in a time in history when those works in translation are available. Yeah, we're incredibly fortunate. Um, yeah. I've, until like not that long ago, I had like this weird hang up about translated literature where I was feeling like I wasn't getting like the real experience. Right. Um, but I... I I've gotten over that now and I'm trying to read more translated stuff because you're, you're so right. There's so much cool stuff going on. And when it, when it's, you know, seen through like a whole different cultural lens, like the same sort of universal human experiences looked at through a different cultural lens. It just, it doesn't just enhance your, like, you know, it's not just enjoyable. It doesn't just enhance your ability to write things. It also enhances your ability to appreciate other human beings. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's, it's important. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most important things we can do is to read people from other cultures. Indeed. Uh, uh, I might just be biased because I'm a writer and a literature geek, but, um, you know, yeah, I honestly truly believe that. Uh, yeah. Um, so have you got anything else in the works at the moment? Yeah. Is- up with Cemetery Dance? Yeah, yeah. Cemetery Dance is going to be publishing a novella of mine in December of um, 2023 uh, called The Plastic Priest. Mm. Uh, and it's, um, it's a, um, how, how can I describe it? It's, it's very different from Moth Woman in a sense. Uh, in another sense, it's not. Uh, it's a, so I, I, just a little bit of background. I was, uh, raised in what in the United States is called the Episcopal church, which is of course in the UK, that would be the Anglican church. Uh, the Episcopal church in, in the U uh, S is the American branch of, of the Anglican church, the American representative to the Anglican, Anglican communion. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and so I was I was raised in that church, and and of course the the church has since the seventies um, allowed women to be priests. Though so the the priest in the title is a female priest, um, and like ma- many of my characters, she is um, beset by uh, anxiety, <laughs> and she's trying to preside over uh, an Anglican. Uh, congregation in the bible belt of the united states and so you know here in in the area where i live uh, fundamentalist christianity is really par for the course 
and the Anglican faith is really a bit too subtle and understated uh, and probably way too liberal for most of the uh, folks here. So it, it really struggles to survive. And, and she's trying to preside over this congregation during the course of COVID and um, finds herself uh, encountering the unreal during that process and being changed by it. Um, so, and uh, it, the writing of that was interesting because uh, I had, I believe I had finished Moth Woman and I was work, wanted to work on something else while it was, uh, you know, still at the publisher before it had been accepted. So I began working on it and it's interesting when I was working on it um, I, and I finished it up, I think in June. Um, and when I finished it, when I was working on it, I completely forgot about the Mothman stuff that I had been obsessed about. I had completely like, it's like, it, it, it just goes to show you how subjectivity works in the brain. It's like the mm -hmm. minute I started working on the plastic priest, all that Mothman obsession kind of fell away. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I was immersed in this other thing. And, and that like the spell was broken. Uh, and recently I've tried to get a little bit more engaged with Mothman, uh, simply just because I'm going to be talking about Mothman more, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's, um, it's interesting because my novellas are always a little bit different than my novels. Uh, my novellas, for some reason, I tend to write them in third person point of view where with my novels, I tend to write them in first person point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I tend to, um, you know, kind of be more about looking at the world as a whole with the novellas, where with the novels, it tends to be intensely personal. I don't know why that is. It just is. Um, so, yeah, I'm delighted to be working with uh, Cemetery Dance. Uh, Kevin Lucia is the editor that I've been working with. Uh, and I'm really pleased that he felt he could take a chance with my work because my work um, sometimes straddles the line between horror and literary work or horror and, and something else. Um, and uh, what he really feels like he wants to do with this paperback and ebook line that they're doing is uh, offer a little bit of something for everyone. So you'll see the more meat and potatoes horror stuff in that line, uh, you know, kind of more conventional horror works and then you'll also see work like mine and it's like we're all one, one part of one big family and you know both are valid and uh he's offering both to the reader and i'm really excited to be part of that um uh, even if just a small part of that as, as a novella and um you know I'm, I'm really excited for people to read the read the novella i think it's uh, I, I try always to improve and um I try to do my very best work and I think it's a look at small town Indiana that maybe I haven't offered to uh, the reader before. It does sound good. Yeah. I, I really like, uh, I really like stories set in small American towns. Uh, that's a really big thing of mine. Um, and it, it sounds really interesting. Uh, the, the, the line that you're talking about from cemetery dance sounds really interesting. I really should like try and get the cemetery dance, like someone from the publisher themselves on here. I, I like to talk to her. Publishers and yeah, I, like I bet Kevin Lucia would be happy to talk to you because he I've heard him on other podcasts talking about the Cemetery Dance line. And also he talks, he's a fiction writer in his own right. Um, and oh, uh, pick something up, yeah, give it a read, get him on. Yeah, yeah. definitely. He's uh, and a, a friendly gentleman. That's that's for sure. Well, that helps. Yeah. I mean, one of us has to be friendly and it's not going to be me. Um, <laughs> I think so, you've been very friendly. I, I can hold it together for an hour or two a week, but um, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing so for my benefit. Absolutely. My pleasure. Um, but yeah, this, this one was out through Word Horde, which, I, which is one of the publishers where it's, it's one of the small presses where I know that if it's from Word Horde, then even if it's not 100% to my taste, it's going to be worth reading. Uh, they, they just do such great stuff. You know, like yeah, I, I've enjoyed working with them. Um, this is my third project with them. Uh, mm. the, Mr. Suicide was the first, and then my second novel, A Sick Gray Laugh, mm. was uh, published by them in 2019. 
And uh, I think there's something to be said when, you know, when you and, a, and the editor kind of are on the same page, especially when you're kind of like a, a more offbeat writer like I am, um, you know, to know that, you know, there's already, you know, you're on the same wavelength that when you send the novel in, it's not going to be like, People aren't going to react to it like you just like put a steaming turd in their email, right? <laughs> it's like people are pe- people are going to give it a chance, and and I know Ross appreciates my work. He, he had the courage to publish Mister Suicide, um, which is a highly transgressive novel, and he's never shied away from publishing uh, transgressive work. Uh, and uh, you know, I can say that I've enjoyed working with him and. Uh, and so anytime you have that kind of meeting of the minds with the publisher, uh, that's something I've always wanted to maintain um, because it's, you know, it, it's just wonderful. It, it's it's a very comfortable working relationship. And uh, yeah, I, I've enjoyed working with him. Yeah, it sounds like a good relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Suicide is very transgressive um this one scene in particular and i i you know which one it is like that it sticks in my mind um yeah it, it won't leave oh well you're you're welcome <laughs> um yeah <laughs> um yeah there's i i think i was just getting stuff out of my system in that book Um, you know, um, there was a lot of, uh, rage and a lot of, uh, and a lot of depression and a lot of, uh, just trauma, et cetera, that had to be worked through. And uh, art is one of the ways in which I've had to work through it. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, um, it was definitely a trip. And the thing is when I'm writing these books, I don't experience them as particularly transgressive. Like for, for me, it's like, okay, I'm just doing my thing, blah, blah, blah. Here I am writing along. Uh, and yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. And I might, you know, when I'm editing it, think like, okay, I need to prepare the reader for this. I, you know, with Mr. Suicide, I did actually uh, create like, I think it was a, like a chart or a graph or something that I gave each chapter a transgressiveness score. And I, I tried not to overload the reader too early or too much with transgressiveness. So I would try to vary it a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I put the book away and it was, it went to word hoard and it, it, several months happened before we did edits. And then I looked at it again when we were doing the final edits of the book and it was like, Holy cow, I can't let this go out. It's like, this is like, and you know, and the the cum is squirting where? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> oh man, yeah. Like, I don't know if I can say that on your podcast if you need to edit you, it you, out. Oh no, no, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, is, but yeah, um, I, I mark I mark every one of these explicit. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so yeah. I mean, it, so I, I, and then I felt like this sense of like, you know, almost self revulsion of like, holy cow, what did I do? And this is gonna, you know, and and really, Ross had to kind of talk me through that process you know and, and be reassuring and for that i will be eternal grateful to him eternally grateful to him because of course the novel went on to win the Bram Stoker award for um in the first novel category and uh and that really was helpful to my career so um yeah i mean it's interesting how these things happen how you know you you write a second person point of view novel uh that's incredibly transgressive and it wins an award. <laughs> it's like um, I, I, I think if I ever had a second chance to do a my uh, uh, acceptance speech, you know, if I could go back in time and redo that speech, I would have started it out by saying, "You sick fucks." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, you get that you voted on this right. for the award, you yeah. know. But um, yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm very grateful. And that was a uh, special time because Jack Ketchum, uh, the the late great Jack Ketchum, came up to mm-hmm. me afterwards to congratulate me. And uh, and my my transgressive work has always tried to um, pattern itself after Ketchum in the sense that Ketchum always presented the transgressive in an emotionally realistic way, uh, even if it was grueling, uh, and even if it was deeply uncomfortable he was aware that he was making you deeply uncomfortable and he wasn't doing it just for shits and giggles. He was doing it because there was a truth that had to be said about this is the way the world actually works. This is the way the world at its absolute worst 
actually works. Um, and that's what motivates my own transgressive reflexes um, is that, you know, again, truth telling and not whitewashing stuff. And, um, and also, I mean, intermingling it with a really organic sense of humor, which uh, probably is what makes my work an acquired taste because, you know, that you have both the transgressive and the satirical kind of interwoven. Uh, so, and humor is of course subjective. So I'll, the, my work is not for everyone, but the folks that it appeals to, it appeals to a lot. And uh, because not a whole lot, a lot of other people are doing this kind of work. Um, and so that's kind of where I found myself in my career uh, with a bit of a, of a niche audience, but I'm really grateful to have that niche audience. Uh, they're bright people. Uh, and uh, there was a review I saw recently of a sick gray laugh where the reviewer on Goodreads said something along the lines of, um, when I read Nicole, I feel less alone. And uh, that is a magnificent thing to hear um, uh, for a writer. And it puts wind in my sails. And I'm, I couldn't be more happy with what I'm doing. Yeah. And I know a lot of people that are big fans of yours. Um, uh, my, my mate Carson, uh, Carson Winter, I don't know if you know him. He's a writer. Oh, and, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a huge fan. He was, you know, he's he's the reason I read Mister Suicide because he wouldn't stop talking about you. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's yeah, and it, I'm I'm glad he wouldn't stop talking about you because it is very impressive. I think it's the first Thank sort you. of like it's it's the first sort of the first novel that I would perhaps classify as extreme horror that I felt like was really sort of human. Mm, thank even you. Even if it's human, not human, necessarily human in a nice way but um, right. yeah but, uh, you know i haven't read a great deal of extreme horror i'm sure there's a lot of stuff out there that's very transgressive yeah, very, i mean yeah, jack ketchum's the girl next door is a good yeah. example of of uh extreme horror that is um that has a heart to it uh mm. and yeah, I, I do need uh, to read that yeah it's a very uncomfortable read highly uncomfortable uh but uh i think one of the best looks at trauma that mm. uh, and trauma and cruelty uh two sides of the same coin that mm. uh is out there and my i have a copy that's been you know catch them signed uh you know for me uh you know one of the conventions before he passed away and so um I, it's a dear book to me but, but the physical book and and the 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 book the novel in general um mm is something that I think uh, if you, it's not for everybody. And I think, you know, you have to kind of go into it knowing that, and it's okay to close the book and not finish it. Um, but it really is an astounding work. And I think something I, I something I hope readers will continue to revisit uh, over the decades uh, because uh, Ketchum was um, a significant writer. He deserves to be remembered. Certainly had an impact, and you know people still talk about him all the time on them, um, like you know r slash horror lit on Reddit and stuff like that. He gets recommended a lot. I, I don't think good. it's gonna, yeah, I don't think it's gonna fade out like anytime soon. Uh, yeah. Um, so I've run out of questions. I've run out of things <laughs> to talk about. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we, uh, before we hang up? Oh goodness, I I don't think so. Um... I, I just want to say that if anyone's listening to them to this and and um, they're a fan or a reader, I want to thank you for your support. Um, knowing that I have readers and fans puts wind in my sails, uh, and I'm grateful to share my thoughts and feelings and skill with you, and uh, grateful to have you as readers. And I, I I'm just I just am very grateful these days i i'm my personality is interesting because i'm very uh, on the one hand very grim and very uh jaded and very sarcastic but i can also be a real sap <laughs> and and uh, you know i i'm part of it is like small town indiana um sort of uh, friendliness and um uh, exuberance and so uh, i am an eccentric i know that about myself uh, and I'm okay with that. And, um, but I, I also, so it's this weird kind of mix of grimness and uh, glee and grimness and charm, I hope, and, or at least uh, grimness and, and politeness and friendliness. 
um, and uh, you know, misanthropy and uh, and and uh, neighborly spirit. <laughs> that's at the you know, kind of like this liminal space uh, mm. that I bounce back and forth across. And I think uh, going back to Moth Woman, it's you know, liminal spaces are a big part of that. And um, you know, my personality is a liminal space. I, I live on a, a state border, you know, between uh, Indiana and Kentucky. So uh, I'm always, I'm, you know, I, I've always found myself kind of like in these liminal spaces and, and I personify that, I suppose, also, but I'm okay with it. And, um, and so it's, and I hope, I think my readers are okay with it too. And I think they appreciate the nuanced part of life. I think it's very important to uh, recognize the need for nuance and, and to, uh, and that's why I can't just, you know, kind of take uh, you know, literally uh, a Lagardian sentiment like existence equals nightmare. Um, I can't, I, anymore at least I can't. I mean, I can't take that, I can't make that my motto for life because uh, for me, existence equals nuance. Uh, there is part of existence that is terrible and terrifying and painful and uh, disturbing and upsetting. And then there's part of life that is also very sweet and uh, friendly and uh, beautiful. You know, I'm looking out my window now, and I'm seeing not the grace, not of existence, like I in a sick gray laugh, and I'm seeing like sunshine coming down on leaves on a tree out there, and I can appreciate that. And I think that's the, what I want to communicate um, in uh, in my fiction is um, that there's a whole range of things out there. I tend to dwell more on the negative, I suppose, um, but. Uh, and for whatever reason, but in my, my actual working life or in my day-to-day -day living life, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, a dour individual. Uh, and I guess, I don't know why I'm not more dour, <laughs> but I'm not, I mean, I'm a, I'm a goofball and, uh, happily so. Well, I mean, you know, I think maybe it's because of the, your writing is so dark that you're, you can be that way. Cause you know, I speak the uh, last, my last episode, I was speaking to a fellow, not, uh, a recent episode, I was speaking to a fella um, named George. He's a director over here. He does like indie films and stuff. And he was saying that, you know, he thinks that writing all the dark stuff allows you to be a bit less dark if you have that sort of predisposition. Um, yeah, you know, like I, I think there's something where you can say, yeah, where, where you can say I've, I've, I've kind of externalized some of that and I've put it mm -hmm. out in the world. Uh, and, um, that doesn't mean that it's not still there in your, your brain, but yeah. there, I think there is something to that. And I think also a lot to be said for, you know, Zoloft, the medication that I've been on for, for a few <laughs> years and for lots and lots of counseling and psychotherapy. Um, you know, that's, um, probably the only reason why I'm still alive, honestly. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, for me, it was also important to, to get away from alcohol, uh, in other substances. Um, I, I, I was a big, uh, gin drinker back in the day. That was like my, my drink of choice. And, um, for me, I found that that didn't work so much for me. So I mean, I wasn't really even able to start creating, uh, reliably. I wasn't able to write on a regular basis until I, I was able to get sober. And, uh, and that, that was definitely a big part of it too. So it's like I said, this really weird, like mix, mismatch between like total darkness and goofiness and, uh, cartoonishness and nightmarishness and grotesqueness. And I think, you know, the world is basically, I, 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 well, I guess the way I look at things now is the, the world is a freak show in which we are both the exhibits and the audience um, and that's what makes the most sense for me right now, uh, that it's a carnival, that it, it's, it's strange. Um, even the ordinary things are strange. Uh, and so you have to just sort of accept that and go with it. And, uh, and that's what I have found helpful. Perfect. Okay. So just one more thing before we go. Um, yeah, sure. Would I like to give recommendations at the end of episodes for people to you know read or listen or watch something. Uh, you give, you've mentioned a lot of books already. So mm -hmm. if you could just recommend one of those to the readers or the listeners of this podcast, rather, like what, what oh, should people goodness. be reading? Yeah. Well, 
if we're looking at fiction right now, I have started the early uh, parts of Caitlin Kiernan's uh, uh, novel, The Red Tree. And I think folks who are interested in the paranormal will find it interesting. Um, it's uh, about a woman who, an author, uh, who goes uh, to a house in this kind of deserted Rhode Island countryside. Uh, that, and the house was previously inhabited by a paranormal investigator and things kind of went sideways. And it really, the parts of it, I'm about 50 pages into it, and it's a 400-page novel, but there, the sense of eeriness that she is able to, or rather they, uh, they, they go by, they, they them pronouns now, um, the, the, the sense of eeriness that they are able to evoke in that uh, novel is really impressive. And it's not something that everyone can uh, easily do. Her, her novel, The Drowning Girl, is also, uh, or th rather their novel, The Drowning Girl, is also a um, one to, to look out for. As far reading as nonfiction yeah, I'm reading that at the moment. As far as mm. nonfiction stuff goes, there is, um, oh, there's a great uh, series of books put out by Jeff Wamsley, the, uh, the guy who runs the Mothman Museum. Uh, and I find these to be even better Mothman books than Keel's The Mothman Prophecies because mm. they include uh, vintage news clippings uh, from, the, from the local newspapers at the time of the Mothman sightings and also interviews with many of the original witnesses. So there's two books. One is called Mothman Behind the Red Eyes. Uh, okay. And another one is called uh, Mothman, The Facts Behind the Legend. Um, okay. And... Yeah, and so they're both available. Very good books. Uh, and I like his take on it, too. He basically gives equal time to the people who believe that this is something supernatural and those who believe that it's something natural and those who believe it was just a, a crane. You know, I mean, there's he doesn't really uh, tip his hand as to what he thinks. He just lets the witnesses and the news articles do the speaking and I find that highly refreshing in the world of paranormal literature. And uh, so I highly People try and explain too much. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think he's, he's really good about saying, here are the facts, here's the news clippings from the local Point Pleasant paper like the day afterwards. Here's all these other sightings. Uh, here's all these other explanations that have been offered by local people. Um, and... And so you don't come away, well, I didn't come away from it saying, oh, yes, it was something supernatural or, oh, yes, it was something completely natural. Uh, like any good um, paranormal subject, it is one of those things where you, you, you kind of get lost in the maze. It's like, well, there's this bit of evidence for this, but there's this bit of evidence of that. And then you have this and that, and you know, et cetera. Uh, kind of like the injured cold thing, too. It's like there's so many different aspects to that story that are so unusual um and yet we don't have photographs <laughs> uh or uh we, we have some eyewitness accounts and we have rumors of mul multiple eyewitness accounts uh and we have a guy who you know wouldn't necessarily have a motive for lying, but how reliable is he? And then, and, and you know, it's like you always get into this hall of mirrors kind of thing where you can never quite pin it down. Um, and I think, uh, and I think that's what those books present is, is, you know, not going at it with any ax to grind one way or another, but just presenting what, what this guy knows from, and Jeff Wamsley apparently grew up in the area um, so, um, so yeah, he's, he's from there and brings that perspective to it too. Perfect. Thank you. And thanks again for, you know, just joining me on here and chatting about the new book and everything else. It's been a lot of fun. I've been really enjoyed it. This has been any time an interviewer gets me to laugh out loud the way you have gotten me to laugh out loud. It's, it's a real treat. So I've, I've very much enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to Terrify Me with Anthony Frost. The theme music is by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com and used under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at TerrifyMePod, all one word. For more from me, 
visit anthonyfrost.com or follow me on Twitter at Anthony R. Frost. That's Anthony without an H. See you next time.